Good morning. I have just a side thought before we start. Some, if you're smart and astute, you might call this a side sermon. Um, there is, we sing songs in here daily and we say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Um, but I want to challenge you to think about that as you're singing that because there's only two ways that I know that you can sing that honestly. And one is to have gone through a time in your life where you were, you understand, you understood your desperation and you understood how needy you actually were and the only solution was Christ. That's one way. And the other way is for believers to have, to take a, make a concerted effort every day to remember our ineptness, to remember our inability, and to remember that without Christ, um, we are still swimming in that mire and swimming in that, uh, that nastiness. So there's only two ways that you can sing that song honestly. One is to have honestly gone through tragedy and trial in your life to where you knew that that was all you had. Um, and sometimes both of these ways. And the other is to, <clears throat> especially for those of us, I being one of these, who have, who have things pre- going pretty well in their life. You know, for us who think we have it going pretty well, we have to constantly remind ourselves of our inability and the fact that the only thing that separates us from the sinner going to hell is the fact that Christ looked on us um, and he saved us from that ineptitude, from that inability. And so I want you to always, don't take for granted that we sing these songs on Sunday morning with meaning. And definitely don't take for granted that it literally is true. And we do that by either experiencing it or going, making a concerted effort every day as, as, as people who have had privilege, who have had uh, the privilege of living in this country, the pr- privilege of... Um, economic, um, <clears throat> whatever, st- stability, you know, um, we have to con- make a concerted effort to truly make that song ring true in our lives. I'm doing something today in my sermon that most people, maybe in, even in seminary, they would tell you uh, not to do. Um, I, I don't typically do this. We, we make a concerted effort to make sure that when we stop in a sermon series for something else, that it is a definitive stopping point. Uh, And then when we begin, it's a good beginning point. But that is not what we did uh, before the Advent um, series. And it was a little more time sensitive. Uh, Advent is, you know, it we celebrate it at a certain time of the year. So um, we ended our, or we paused our Roman series in the middle of a, of a two-part sermon. Uh, so if you're here today, um, I will do my best to uh, briefly catch you up because I think that would be helpful for you. Uh, but I think all of us, after being away from Romans for two months, probably uh, could use that also. Um, so I'll try to sort of, uh, we've probably lost the steam of that first sermon that I did uh, a couple months ago or in uh, late November, and so I'll try to get that going in motion uh, today. In our first sermon, though, from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we looked at some questions that arose as it concerned the teachings of Paul. 
Uh, we, must, we must remember that Paul's teaching uh, is nothing less than the gospel. That is what he's teaching. He's teaching these people the gospel. But to many uh, who are hearing him preach, it must have really felt like the first time they'd ever heard it. When in fact they had been hearing it their whole lives, uh, it was just really in a different context. Even though the content of Paul's message was the same, it was really just the truth about God. Um, it was the same message they'd been hearing over the years. It felt drastically different to Paul's audience. So he heard all sorts of objections. And kind of, for some background, what he's doing here in Romans 3, 1 through 8 is, he is either answering literal objections that he's heard over time, um, or he is answering objections that one might have. You know, you've done this before when you're, when you're speaking. You, you're, you're trying to sell something to someone, and you're telling them all of the benefits, and before they even get a chance to reject your proposal, you, you say, well, I know you might be thinking, right? You've probably done that before. I know you might be thinking this, or I know you might be thinking that. This is sort of what Paul's doing. He's, he's giving them the gospel. He's telling them about Jesus and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they've been learning, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. And he's basically, he's either answering objections or he's saying, well, I know you might be thinking this. And so that's kind of where these, these questions has co- have come from over uh, last, the last sermon we did in Romans and, and today. Um, even though the message was the same, it was, it was the truth about God. His presentation was different, and really the missing piece had been fulfilled, right? He had been filled in. Jesus, the missing piece of the Israelite religion, Jesus had been filled in, but they didn't see it. So they're hearing this message of the gospel, and they're having to process it. And Paul begins answering some questions that they have or, or that they might have. And the first question that he answers, and we did this in our last sermon uh, in Romans, was what is the advantage of the Jew? If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself, not of works, if heritage doesn't matter... If Jewish heritage doesn't matter, if belonging to Abraham doesn't matter, if circumcision doesn't matter, what advantage is it to be a Jew in general? And so what we discussed is, and, and it's very important that you get this, they had a distinct advantage. The, the main van- advantage they had was that no other religion in the world had been given the oracles of God, had been given the word of God. They literally had all in, in all that the world had ever had of what God wanted them to do and what he wanted them to be. They were prepped, friends, more than anybody else for the moment of the Messiah. So not only did they have the word of God for daily living up to the Messiah, they had the oracles, they had the prophets, they had the people of God who were leading them to the point where they would be able to receive the Messiah. So there was a great advantage to the Jew. He had the knowledge and the words of God. He knew what God wanted, but also God gave him a sneak peek at what his Messiah would look like so that when the Messiah came, they would be willing to receive him. Another question that was asked in the first part of Romans chapter 3, does the faithlessness of man nullify the faithfulness of God? Or ask it this way, how did the rejection of Jesus by the Jews affect the promise of God made to Abraham? So the, the 
problem arises when you think, well, God made a promise that Abraham's nation, like the nation would be extended beyond the sand on the shore and the, the stars in the sky. And then God says, wait, your Abrahamic uh, relationship, your heritage, doesn't mean anything compared to receiving the gospel of Jesus. So what, what advantage does a Jew have? And then, and then is God a liar? Because he made this covenant with his people and that he's basically what they felt like was broken it off. But what we find is that that is not at all the case. And we answer that by saying this firstly and then something else. The first is that God is sovereign. And so he does things how and in the way that he pleases. And that we don't have the mental capacity nor do we have the power to appropriately question God in his motives and in his ways. So that was the first answer that would have uh, been that would have been sufficient for this second question. But another is this, there is a remnant of God's Jewish people. As a matter of fact, the first Christians were Jews. And I believe this to be true. God has God is keeping his promise to the Jewish people and that Jewish people are being saved and that salvation is still about and will always be about faith in God alone since the time of Jesus. It's through in God alone, through Christ alone. But that God will save Jewish people until he returns. God is sovereign and he's always kept a remnant of himself. And then we ask this question. Are we on the wrong, is, is the gospel on the wrong side of history? That's the argument that a lot of people like to make when you start discussing uh, certain, certain social topics, certain issues, like, um, you know, <clears throat> being a virgin before you're married. That is, that's the wrong side of history type stuff. Like, no one does that anymore. Having a sexual ethic that is biblical concerning who should marry who and and all of those things. That's the wrong side of history. That's believing in a creation story, um, a creation narrative like the Bible prescribes it. That's being on the wrong side. We're, we have science now, you know? I mean, which is dumb because science proves the Bible. It doesn't disprove the Bible, which is a, another side sermon. I won't go there, but that's the wrong side of history, right? Well, that is the argument for uh, non-Christians to Christians a lot of times. But you know what the Bible says in, in Romans 3, verse 4, that let every man be put up against God and proven wrong and let God be true. Friends, the truth of the matter is, no matter how many people say wrong side of history, wrong side of history, wrong side of history, not a single soul on this earth could believe in God in the way he has prescribed. As a matter of fact, the religion of God could have died off with... Now, you hear me, because you're going to have to hear everything I'm saying, because it's going to sound weird. The religion of God, could have, that, that, of the gospel, could have died off with Jesus, and God would still be true. Now, that's not what happened. We know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and you don't stop a fire like that. Let every man be put against God, and God is still true. Typically, these questions arise like the ones we looked at in our last sermon in Romans, and 
our questions we're going to look at today. These questions arise from an unwillingness to listen to truth or a misinterpretation or a misrepresentation of what someone who speaks truth is trying to say. So today as we examine the rest of the text, we can see how we can answer the rest of the questions as it concerns Paul's teaching. I want to read, since it's so short, I want to read 5 through 8 for you again in order that we can sort of see what's being uh, said here. Romans 3, 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteousness to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By the way, I'll say this again in a minute. But when Paul says, I speak in a human way, he's saying, what I'm saying is stupid. I'm saying this in a stupid way because this is the way you're talking. Okay? He's not being like, I'm trying to get on your level. He's saying, what you're saying is dumb and you don't, you don't, know, you don't know the ways of God. That's what he's saying. By no means, he then follows that up with. For then, how could God judge the world? But if Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Pray with me this morning. Father, Lord, that today and every day that we would not say a word as it pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not studied out and thought out and prepared and thoughtful and kind and seasoned with salt, palatable, that we would be kind but we would be stern, that we would be loving in the way we present you. But not only, Lord, as Christians, not only would we be willing to present your gospel But every day, Lord, make us ready to eat of it. Lord, let us be, be ready to receive your gospel. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for all that you do and all that you mean to us in our lives. Help us to always depend on you more than anything else. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you remember our sermon based around these questions that Paul is either preemptively answering or questions that he faced in the past. And even though Paul's gospel is not a new gospel, the Jews had fallen into a very formalistic and works-based society. And, And all of this was predicated on the fact that they were of the line of Abraham. They were Jewish people. They had this heritage They had this tradition. And Paul comes along and he tells them that their heritage and their good works are nothing unless Christ, the Savior of the world, is in them. That this salvation that has always been, this salvation that they are seeking, this salvation that Paul is presenting, has always been about grace alone and faith alone. But now Paul is confirming the message that John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The message that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says it's about grace alone through faith alone. Paul confirms that it's also through Christ alone. And this is, this has shaken them to their core. This has shaken them to their 
foundation. There were some things that Paul was teaching that without the Spirit of God in their heart or without a willingness to learn would have obviously been taken the wrong way or would not have been received at least. Now remember throughout Jewish history, but especially at this point, they were not exactly free people. For, Paul, for Paul's audience, their history is all they really had. They didn't have this kingdom anymore. As a matter of fact, just a short time later, their temple would be destroyed. They would never have a temple again. I mean, they're building one right now. But they would never have a temple in the same way, and they still won't in the future. I don't know if you have a left-behind sort of end-times mentality, but you should erase that, scrub that from your brain, use bleach, whatever you need to do to get that out of your brain, because that's not how the end of the world is going to happen. And, and they, will not, they will not have a temple in the sense that they did uh, when the prophets were here. Um, so, so all they had was their heritage. They had lost practically everything else. And then Paul comes in and he says, wait a minute. This is not going to work either. This is not going to work either. He comes in and he tells them of this gospel. There's no way, there's no way, I, I don't believe there's no way, uh, especially if someone is holding on to something so strongly, which I don't know if you've shared the gospel much, but most people you share the gospel with, they are holding on to something so strongly that it's not Jesus. There's no way that there's not going to be some conflict there. So Paul's audience, their history was all he, they had. Now this example is not a one-to-one -one illustration, but I've seen it multiple times. There's a younger preacher or a preacher who's very on fire for the Lord, and he goes into a church that's sort of dying, and he tells them how it's going to be, and he gives them all of these strategies, and a lot of them are probably good strategies on how to revive the church, but the strategies don't look like what the church is accustomed to or, or the history of the church. So he is typically, unless the grace of God intervenes, he is typically rejected simply on the fact that it removes power from what has been established for so long. And now obviously there's a very huge spiritual aspect of this. Jesus was rejected because it's a spiritual battle, but also because there is this there were these systems in place that rejected something new, that rejected an idea that was not their own. Simply on the fact that it would remove them from whatever either sense of control or control they had. Paul said, your Jewish heritage, it doesn't matter. And the response, instead of seeking out where Paul was going, he said, well, I guess Jews don't matter then. And I guess God is a liar because he said we would matter. You know, this is an overreaction. If you get on social media anytime um, or just talk with people who have differing opinions, um, you, can, you can see this is where you go. It's like, I have a different opinion than you. Okay, Obama did some good things. Oh, you're a liberal. Trump has done some good things. White supremacist! You know, this is, this is where people go. It's like either or. It's not like there's not, a, there's not a middle ground a lot of times. So this is what they did. Paul said, look, your heritage doesn't matter. I want to tell you a new and living way. And they said, Jews don't matter. And, and, and God's promises are broken. You know, so they went, to the, they went to the nth degree on that. And we answered those extremes last week by saying, of course, Jews matter. And of course, 
God's promises are true, but you aren't a child of God because you're a child of Abraham. You're a child of God because you're a child of Jesus. There were other things in Paul's teaching. For example, he said in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now this statement was understood and it, uh, misunderstood and it, sh- it sent shockwaves to the Jewish system. And there were two main reasons for making a statement like this. First, it is Calvinistic in the idea that God wants you, where, where God wants you, he will get you. Where God wants you, he will get you. And, and what it simply means is this, is if sin is great, but God is calling you, that the grace to overcome that sin will, ne- it will necessitate, uh, necessitate that it is greater than that sin. Grace always wins if that's the plan of God. The second reason that the idea of grace is greater than sin would be a part of Paul's teaching in that uh, where sin abounds, the holiness of God shines brighter. Now, I know this one's harder to understand, but uh, it's the same reason that jewelers put diamonds on black velvet when they're showing you diamonds as opposed to just putting them on the glass. They put them on black velvet because the contrast between the black and the diamonds shows the brilliance of the diamond. Where sin abounds, the glory of God shines brighter because the sinful man shows, in contrast, the beauty and the brilliance and the holiness of God. I was thinking about this as we uh, were over at my uh, over my sister-in-law's house on New Year's Eve. Um, Bennett was there, and we tend to typically think he's like a tall kid, but there was also like a three-year-old who was almost the same size as Bennett. And it put it into perspective that Bennett's probably just an average size kid, and this three-year-old is either a monster or, or is, or or maybe you know my kid is not quite as as big as I thought he was. And it it would it's like you know a husband gaining a bunch of weight so his wife looks skinnier. And I know that y'all probably think that that's my plan overall over the last year, but I, this was really this is unintentional, okay? Uh, body by house renovation. Uh, so it, it, there are these comparisons when you see something that's starkly different. It's, it's different and it really brings out, it brings out the beauty, it brings out uh, the different nature of what it's being compared to. Now, these statements that Paul makes, as, as bold as they are, they brought out a few more questions and I want to just briefly discuss those today. And this will sort of be the, that was, a, that was not an introduction, if it helps you to think that my introductions are too long. That was not an introduction. That was part of the sermon. But, um, so anyway, I want to briefly go over these last two questions that are related to the first three and just see if we can answer those. The first is this, how can God punish sin if it leads to the magnification of his glory? How can God punish sin if it leads to the magnification of his glory? Now, this is what I was trying to get at a minute ago. Diamonds against black velvet, the diamonds shine brighter. God against sinful man, God shines brighter. And so these people are, are posing these questions, or it's a hypothetical question maybe. How, how can God be mad if what we do makes him look better? How can God judge us if what we do makes him look better? And then a second question came from that. If what we do makes God better, should we go on sinning so that God can look even better and better and better? And this question to me is always sound dumb. It sounds crazy. It's like, why would anybody ask that? But you know what? But you know what? Paul says right before that, you've accused me of doing this. 
Why would anybody accuse Paul of doing this? You've accused me of doing this. So, so the first question, or the fourth really question of, of the five that we have, how can God punish sin if it leads to the magnification of his glory? And should we go on sinning? Should we sin so that grace may abound? Let's look at that first one. How can God punish sin if it leads to the magnification of his glory? Now we can see that Paul doesn't really have time for this question, by the way he answers it. He's basically like, you're putting this in a, in a not-so-smart man sort of logic, and, it, and it's really not smart. And so I'm not going to give it a, a bunch of time. I'm not going to give it a bunch of explanation. Um, it's irrational, what you're saying. Uh, think about it this way, and it may help you to understand how, how irrational this question is. It's basically like saying someone should be more racist so that non-racist people look better. Right? Or like I said a minute ago, it's like, I'm going to get fatter so that my wife looks skinnier. Which, you know, it's, it's really sort of illogical, but that's what they're saying. Now, even though Paul doesn't honor these questions with much of a response, uh, he and others, in this moment, he and others actually do throughout Scripture. Paul and others answers, answer the question throughout Scripture, why does God punish sin if sin ultimately magnifies the glory of God? And I want to give you four small ways that they answer this. Four answers to why this question is illogical. And the first goes back to something we've already discussed, and I'm only going to mention it here for full context. The first is this. God is sovereign, and he can judge how he wants, who he wants, and when he wants. Now, we've already mentioned that, and I, I went over that a minute ago, so I'm not going to go over it much again. But one of the first ways to tell that someone is out of their faith or an antagonist to the faith or at least struggling with their faith is when they ask a question like this. Now, we need to work things out like this for ourselves, but this should be a pretty easy one. Should I obey God or do, I, do what I want to do? Because in a weird way, they both magnify God. This should be an easy question to answer. The only person that answers with the latter is a person who has a problem with obeying God and sometimes the thought of obeying God, which I believe um, should be sort of not easy, but it should be something that we're like at least strive to do as a Christian. The thought of obeying God as difficult, the thought of obeying God as a burden is a sign of an unregenerate heart. One of the lifelong struggles of a Christian is against his own will. But let me tell you with certainty, friends, if you are in Christ, you will be and begin to be and over time be more and more of an echo of the Lord's prayer, not your will, not my will, but your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now there's another response to this foolishness. What right does the creature have to question the creator? This is another response to this question found elsewhere in Scripture. What gives a finite person the right to question the infinite in this manner? Now, I believe I've said this before, but this is why the destruction of the creation narrative is so important to fight. And it's so important for people who hate God to destroy the creation narrative. Because if there is a world, then there must be a creator to the world. And if there's a creator to the world, everyone that is created is then held accountable to that creator. But if you destroy the fact that there's a creator, if you destroy this God, then you are not responsible to anyone, or at least in your mind. 
you're not. And Paul says it in Romans 9. He says, what right does the clay have to the potter to tell him, to tell God, to tell the potter how to form him? Or what right does the creature have to tell the creator what he is to do? And then he goes on in Romans 9 Verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he He wills. Now here is something that we must understand very early on in our faith. We don't think like God and we don't have the capacity to work out the problems and the things that God has worked out because we are finite. We are the creation and not the create. The only way that we have any ability to think like God is if he reveals himself to us through his spirit. Typically, firstly, by becoming a Christian, and then typically by spiritual growth throughout our life. Because we are the creature and not the creator, any of God's qualities that we possess are skewed. Now this is very important, and you need to understand this because you might think that I'm wrong here unless you follow this line of logic. Without Christ, this applies to the lost world. It applies to nominal Christians. Without Christ, love is not really love. Spirituality and religion is not really religion. Or any other trait that we might possess without Christ is only a mere portion of what it could be. Because the, the only way the creation has any ability to love or, or be kind or, or any other characteristic of Christ, like Christ, is if Christ is in him. So without him, every quality that God has given to us is only a partial quality. Even Christians lack the full ability to love like God, but we are most like him when we are following him in his word, through prayer, through church fellowship, through other religious um, activities that honor God. We are operating with a fraction of the puzzle, friends, as the creation, and we're trying to put the whole puzzle together. Who are we as the creation to question the creator? Only the creator has the capacity and the knowledge to determine things like the uh, eternal destination of man. The eternal destination of his creation. Here's another answer to the fourth question. He is as much righteous when he pardons as when he condemns. How can God judge? If If our sin makes God glory more, even more. How can he judge? Well, he is as much righteous when he pardons as when he condemns. Romans 9, 7 through 8. I mean, uh, excuse me. Psalm 9, 7 through 8 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Whether or not it seems fair, God is right no matter his choices. 
We have the capacity to understand this only as the creation and not as the creator. Honestly, when we are looking at the things of God, we don't even have the capacity to judge on some level whether it is right or wrong because we are the creation and not the creator. We are not working with the full puzzle. So our best move, friends, is not to skirt the line of truth or, or act like what we do doesn't matter. Our best move is to allow the righteousness of God to live in our lives so that the glory of God is manifested through good works and not through our condemnation. Do you understand that? Our best move is let, to let the righteousness of God live in our lives so that the glory of God is manifested in us through good works, through salvation in Christ, and not condemnation. Because the glory of God will be uh, manifested in one or the other in our lives. I know that this is a lot. This is more of a, the- this is more of a theological conversation than it is really a then it really is one of those, woohoo, let's get up and, and everybody, you know, shout and say amen and give the preacher a high five when he's done. It's more of a theological conversation. But the truth is still the same. That God is going to be glorified in sending you to hell just as much as he is in saving you and sending you to heaven. There's a fourth answer to this. Why should I not, why should I just not Continue in my way so that God receives glory by the craziness in my life. And this is, this is the most important, I think. True faith seeks to honor God in all things and believe what he says about himself. True faith seeks to honor God in all things and believe what he says about himself. And therefore, glory comes through obedience and not contradiction. Glory comes through obedience and not Contradiction. This is trusting in God. This is obeying God. This is self-denial. This is believing regardless of how difficult it is to believe. It is faith, but it is only blind faith. Because It is only ever blind faith because we have the inability to see all that God has revealed in the way that he has revealed it. He reveals to us in part. It's not blind faith because we've been given Jesus It's not blind faith because we have the answers through the scriptures. It's not blind faith because we have a line of communication with God in prayer. Friends, the best way to give glory to God is to believe him and honor God by doing what he says. That's the best way to glorify God. And I know that seems sort of like nonsensical. It seems like, oh yeah, Bryce, I mean, that's what we know to do as a Christian. But friends, that's not always what we do. That's not always what we do. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, if we're, if we're doing a tally, if we're doing a positive, a pro and a con list, are there more, are there more things in our life that sort of are breeding condemnation? Or are there more things in our life that are honoring God and truly showing that we trust Him and that we believe Him? Friends, the best way to answer the question is, should I go on sinning? Should I go on doing whatever so that God's glory may be manifested more is true faith seeks to honor God and to believe what he says about himself. I want to ask you this last question or answer this last question and we'll be done for the day. Should we sin so that grace may abound? Should we sin so that grace may abound? 
This, this question more than others seems to spring from a little bit of truthfulness in Paul's life. I don't think this was a hypothetical question. As a matter of fact, Paul says just before this that they are slandering him. That they are slandering him in the way he is offering grace. Basically saying that the offer that he has is cheap grace. They attacked Paul because he went at their establishment. He went at their traditions. He went after the temple. He went after their heritage. The gospel was uprooting their system that provided them a host of comforts, a host of security. So instead of responding in truth or seeking to see if what Paul was saying was true, they went for lies and deceit. They said, Paul, all you're doing is trying to get people to sin, so, and, and you're just justifying it by saying God is going to be honored more because his grace is going to be shown brighter. This is not what Paul was saying, and it's anti-gospel rhetoric. As a matter of fact, there were uh, believing, there were people who called themselves Christians that came a little bit later who believed and acted this way. And as a matter of fact, I think we've seen a resurgence in our time of those type of people. And they're called antinomian. Antinomian. Antinomianism was popular um, after Jesus. And basically what it was, it was saying that um, the law doesn't matter as much. Good works don't matter as much because of grace and because of love. Because of what God has done for us. I think that there's sort of an antinomian resurgence where this cheap grace is received. And cheap grace is simply the idea or the thought that salvation requires little from man and an indifferent savior, and a savior who is indifferent. That's what cheap grace is. That salvation requires little to nothing from mankind and a savior who is indifferent. Antinomianism is taking the best of what God has to offer, and that's grace, and twisting it so that humans can offer the least amount in return. Friends, the grace of God is the, a premier gift of God. And it is free, like Ephesians 2 says, that it's by grace we are saved through faith and it is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is free, but it is not cheap. So the answer to the question is, should we continue to do evil? Should we continue to do evil so that grace may abound? The answer to the question is an obvious no. We should not keep sinning so that grace may abound. So how do we avoid this trap? Because you may think, Again, you may be looking at this question and thinking, this is not me. I've never had this problem. But I bet we have on some level. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid falling into an antinomian trap? The first thing you do, and this is just quick, you can write it down or just remember it. Watch out for tendencies to live as a prodigal while trying to take on the benefits of being in the Father's house. Watch out for tendencies to live as a prodigal while trying to have the benefits of being in the Father's house. Many of us, friends, especially modern-day Christians, we want to live like a prodigal. We want to eat the slop that's out in the world. We want to consume all of that. We want to have the parties. We want to have the lifestyle. We want to live like we want to live. And we want to say, God, my Father, my Lord, I'm in your house. And act like as we're in the house of God, we're not living like a prodigal the rest of the time. So watch out for tendencies to live as a prodigal while taking on the full measure and joy of, of being in the house of God. Listen, friends, salvation without obedience 
is not salvation that is prescribed in the Bible. Salvation without obedience to the gospel is not salvation that is prescribed in the Bible. Watch out for tendencies to live as a prodigal. Watch out for tendencies to denigrate the law and its importance in our spiritual life. Watch out for tendencies to denigrate the law and its importance in our spiritual lives. Friends, the law is really that important. I know that people might say, and you might even, I mean, it just is the most recent example. I'm sure there's a million others, but it was very common. Um, What's the dude? Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley says, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I'm not trying to pick on this guy. He's very vocal. He's very widely known, and he said something stupid. So this is why I'm repeating it. He says we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Is the law really that important? Because th- these are the seeds that come in. Is loving our neighbor as ourselves, is it really that important? Is not gossiping, is not slandering, is not lying? Because here's what we do, my antinomian friends. At times we become antinomian and we look at our lives and we say, man, this law, really it's, it's really strict. It's too hard to follow. There's too many things to follow. And we say to ourselves, and this is the antinomian sort of um, rationalization. We say to ourselves, you know, I, didn't, I did really good on this part of it. I did great over here. So to miss on this side, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, is God really going to be mad about me breaking this tiny part? Or he can't be as mad because over here I'm killing it. I'm killing it. You don't think you have antinomian tendencies, friends? Have you ever had that sort of rationalization in your head in some way or the other? I know you have. If you haven't, you're a liar. If you're telling me you haven't, you're a liar. You've had that rationalization in your head. And here's how it shows up otherwise. If you don't think, I'll convince you otherwise. When you look at someone else and see their struggles and your underlying thought is, how do they struggle with that? That is, a, that's a, that, is the, that is what the antinomian people fell into. Belittling the things that they did themselves, belittling sin. In order to justify or rationalize their behavior. Watch out for tendencies to denigrate the law and its importance in our spiritual life. And then I've already kind of hit on this. Watch out for tendencies to justify smaller sins in the light of committing bigger sins. Watch out for tendencies to justify smaller sins in light of committing bigger sins. This is probably the most common antinomian rationalization that we have. The most common example is gossip. Here's how it manifests itself. I know I shouldn't say this. But if I don't tell you this, I'm going to go blow up on this person. That's how it manifests itself. I know I shouldn't say this, but if, if, if I don't tell someone, dot, dot, dot. You know, we've discussed this and I just mentioned it. You may say something like, these sins I have are small. Even to the point where, like, in your head you believe a little bit. They're not even real ones. They're not even real ones. 
Friends, we cannot live for Christ and live without obedience to his will. We also cannot use any means to justify our our behavior. There is nothing, there is no justification, there is no rationalization that will save us from our sins. The only justification we have is through Christ and a life that is changed for him. It might ease our minds to say, well, this is not so bad. Or that's way worse. Or does God really want us to strictly follow the law this way? But it will not help at judgment day. And we will all be judged. We will all give an account of ourselves. We must reject cheap grace as not the grace that God prescribes. Sinclair Ferguson said this about the antinomian thought. The antidote for antinomianism is the understanding that grace, not law, produces what the law requires. Yet at the same time, it is what the law requires that grace produces. Grace, not law, produces what the law requires. But it is what the law requires that the grace of God produces. Let's not lean so heavily on grace that we forget that it is grace that produces obedience in our lives. Will you trust the Lord? Will you honor Him? Friends, you need to know this. If you feel like you have gotten to a point where the law of God, obedience to God, doesn't matter as much as it has in the past or doesn't matter as much as it should right now, it's, there are some pretty easy steps and I say steps, I mean steps. I don't mean leaps. I don't mean, you know, jumping off cliffs. I mean steps. There are some processes that you can put into play to get you to love the things of God, to get you to obey God. And the first is just confess to Him. Confess to Him that you have not treated the things that He loves as if you love them also. Confess to him that you have not treated the things that he loves as if you love them like he does. Confess to him that you would like to do such. That you would like to treat them in the way he treats them. And then start placing little things, little reminders, little bits of spiritual goodness in your life that reminds you and challenges you to follow God in the way that he's prescribed in the gospel. Surrender to him, trust him, believe in him, and he will, through his spirit, give you the power to obey him.